All right. Jake and Seth, hello, people. Today we're going to talk to you about There Will Be Blood. Um, it's a fun little family comedy made from a PTA. It's quirky. It's fun. I'm just kidding. Uh, not a, not an app description. I'm going to hand it off to Seth to uh, give us a little intro into this lovely this lovely little movie. Yes, there will be blood uh, for my for my money um, in my lifetime. I think the two best movies that have come out are Pulp Fiction and this movie. And I'm very happy to have seen this one in theaters. Um, this was sort of both Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day Lewis had these big runs in the '90s, and Day Lewis was a little earlier. He kind of goes from uh, My Left Foot, Last of the Mohicans, uh, Age of Innocence, The Crucible. He has this crazy, you know, he wins uh, Best Actor for My Left Left Foot, becomes this really indelible uh, actor. Well, kind of heralded as the next Laurence Olivier because he was British. Um, And then by 97, I want to say, he was kind of out of the game. Like, that was his first retirement. And then he makes this big comeback with Gangs of New York. And then this was kind of like his second in that comeback run in the late 2000s. And so I remember seeing Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York and being blown the fuck away. And like that was really a movie where his performance so outshines what the movie is. But he's unbelievable. It's like still to this day, that's actually one of my favorite like acting performances anyone has done. I actually, I remember seeing that movie in theaters. I know I said that all the time, but I actually like that movie. Um, and really only because of him, he like lifts it up. Like it's got a cool ending and a cool beginning and then it drags in the middle, but he's great. And like, he just, he, I, you're, I'm rooting for him by the end of the movie. And so I remember seeing that movie and being like, wow, this was a great actor, like a great young actor. Then he's come back after like a seven or eight year break. And now he's become a fucking iconic. Like he just went to this other level on that movie that you hadn't seen. Like he was, I mean, he was an Academy Award winning actor. I think he was kind of more seen as like a, you know, more of a proper British actor or something. He was known as a method guy, though, even back in the day. Like, even with my left foot, he was a method guy. And so, like, it was just transformative to see him in Gangs of New York, though. I'd never seen anyone act with that kind of physicality. Um, And so, it's like, you're coming off of that movie, and then for Paul Thomas Anderson, he had had this run of, like, Boogie Nights and uh, Magnolia. And uh, I think the last one, he had done Punch Drop. Yeah. sort of 
push back on that somewhat. I would say there are some flaws to it. I wouldn't say it's 100% perfect. But like I said before, I think of the last 35 years or so, certainly of my lifetime, I think this is one of the two best movies that has come out. So there's your intro. Boom. Drop that mic. How did, how did you feel, Jake? That, would you, did, did you feel like a lot of hype going into it? Or did you feel like you had an open mind? I heard some. I had some pretty big hype just because um, I remember our master conversation, and I knew how much you loved PTA. And then I remember just from the way you talked about this, I knew I didn't realize it was your number two. Um, I wasn't sure. I actually thought it might have fallen behind the master. Um, no, I got this above it. Yeah. All right. So I remember you also. You also, I think, told me when this came out, like you saw this like opening night, right? Like, weren't you excited yeah. for this movie? Okay. <laughs> showing and it was like only it was only college people basically because it was definitely people staying up really i remember it was near like a community college or something i could tell like a film class was there but me and my brother went and so it was kind of this youngish but like old enough crowd and it was just a really cool fit where it was like the reactions day lewis was getting on some of his line reads was unbelievable and there were points too i remember with that crowd where very serious dramatic stuff were ha- was happening but we almost get a moment of hilarity I can remember too at the finale. At the finale, uh, some of the stuff with the milkshake and uh, the, the back and forth with him and uh, with him and Eli is. Uh, I just remember some of his lines, even though they are incredibly dramatic and serious. We had hit this moment with the movie where we were like, he was acting at such a high level, and we were having such a fun time watching him at that level. We all we were cracking up, but then I also remember. Once the bowling pin dropped, everybody got silent again. And so it was one of those crowds where we were reacting the right way to every moment, and that's kind of like the perfect way to watch a movie, I guess. And so that's always stuck with me, too, that my first watch, I kind of got this perfect crowd at a perfect time of night to like kind of experience the whole thing. So that has definitely colored my uh, view of the movie. No, as it would and should. That would totally color my experience. I talk about it all the time with Marvel movies. Like it's, it's awesome when the crowd, like when you're reacting with the crowd, the crowd's reacting with the movie. And it's yeah. like all clicking. Like it's no, that's awesome. Uh, so I, that's what I thought. I remember um, I knew you liked this movie, and that was actually so. Hearing that story, like I obviously it was different for me. I was watching on my couch one night after work. Um, I liked it. Uh, so my, going in, I did have high expectations, um, thinking it would be. I liked the master, uh, I, I, so I I went in with high expectations. I've seen the master before this too, because I think. So I definitely had high expectations, but I wasn't going in like, you're going to love this movie. I was like, it'll be good. Like maybe it'll be, I think it'll be like the master close to that. Yeah. Um, and I think they're both good movies. I think they're good in like different ways though. Uh, I liked it. I didn't, I thought, I don't want to say it was like overrated. I just had a couple of like, I don't want to say, I liked the movie. I thought it was really good. And uh, I think part of the th- Like, if I had watched it in the theaters, I think it might have helped. Like, I, I don't know if I'm really doing a good job describing the reason I'm saying, like, scene in my house, like, hearing the way you describe it. Like, to me, I thought it was, like, this great Western movie. But it's, like, really, like, contemplative and it's, like, long and it's, like, the first 15 minutes, there's no dialogue. And it's, yes, like... Very, uh, there's a lot of uh, Kubrickian moments. There's a lot of John Houston moments. Yeah, and, like... And the ending, especially Kubrickian, which I find very interesting. And so, for me, like, the reason I, like, I think if I'm in the theater and it's pitch black and I'm just standing there for two and a half hours, uh, I think I, like, can really process it and it'll hold me well. It was hard, like, in my... On my couch, yeah. but... I can say, I'm going to try to help 
um, some people find it too allegorical or too. Um, but I say I think the two primary are, there's I, I guess there's three primary criticisms. One is that it's too allegorical. Another is that every character is despicable and unlikable. And the third is that Paul Dano couldn't really pull off the part, which is. I agree with that. I actually, so at first I liked him and he had some good scenes, but he. That, so I'll say when I first watched the movie, my first, my main criticism was that I thought Paul Dano got blown off the screen. Now that I've seen it a few times, like I watched it last night, I actually didn't feel like he, he had any, like there weren't any scenes where I felt like he was bad. I just, like I, I did still feel like another actor could have been more powerful with the role maybe. But I didn't feel like he was swinging and missing in his scenes. I think he just kind of, I, I kind of came over with the feeling where I was like, man, if that was like Ed Norton when he was younger or somebody like, you know, someone with a little more power behind him, it could have been a better thing. But I, it's a tough character too because there's a lot that goes on off screen with him. Almost every scene deals with Daniel Plainview. I think there's one scene where he likes like beating up his father. That's yeah. the only scene you get away from Daniel. And so, th- so much of that character has to do with off screen stuff that you don't get to see. And yeah, uh, Dale, yeah, I mean, he was kind of, when he when it came out, he was raked through the mud, I think. Literally, literally and uh, figured that like, people, people just thought Day-Lewis had torched him. I mean, I, I, I have to agree with that assessment. And it's like hard because like in the, in pretty much every scene, it's designed that he's like supposed to be like supplicant or like inferior to plain view. Like with the exception of maybe the opening scene, I'd say plain view. I guess there's, I guess there's some back and forth there he's at his best when he's in the actual church. Like I thought the first sermon was really good. And the scene with him in plain view when he's like exercising him, I thought that was probably the best scene. I thought that was the only time that Dano was like, bringing it like that to me was his I like best sequence. Scenes a lot too. I think those are both like, I spent the, yeah, the scene where uh, he has to baptize Daniel is a, it's, it's, I think it's all a one take and it's just amazing. Both of their faces are unbelievable in that scene. And then it's like, he's slapping Day-Lewis in the face repeatedly. And then there's that part where Day-Lewis finally gets up and turns around and says something to him. And you see Dano's face go white. <laughs> I think they're both really good in this. In those moments. I, they are, but like in everyone, in every other one, like I didn't like the final, like the milk straw scene is good, but the way it ends, like with that weird, it was like the same slap slap fight they had in the mud just ends. Like the fights themselves. I don't, I, I'm not saying I want like a fast and furious nine, like brawl between the two of them, but like, it's this weird, they're both done in a way that I think the first time is effective. It just shows how much, like how dominant Plainview is when he like rubs them in the mud. It's the first time like he comes and asks for the donation and they're, they're having issues with the mind. I think his son's ear has been hurt and he just beats him, literally beats him into the ground, just humiliates him in front of all these men. And like, could have like killed him. Like, and then and then I just say at the end they do it again, and it's like, but this time he kills him, and it's like I, he'd already killed someone else. Like, yeah, that was a little more justified. It's like I just my, the, my I had a problem with Dano, and then I also just had a problem with like, the escalate. Like, it was a good movie. But like, I like the movie. I think it kind of got caught in this weird space. It's like this. I like it's like I like it, and it's really smart. And like my favorite scenes are when he's sitting there and he's like, uh, I'm an oil man. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm kind of going off track now. I feel like it went negative. I didn't mean to go negative. I, I like it. But 
Let me just uh, respond to that in terms of the fighting stuff. Yeah. I think what that's really playing into is the larger allegory taking place. Um, and so I think Plainview clearly represents, um, you know, the capitalist uh, doom that is like impending for this. It's like he clearly represents the greed of America, the capitalism of America, uh, the entrepreneurship, all of that stuff uh, sort of. He, he just embodies that capitalist part of America, the evilness, everything included with it. And I think Eli embodies everything that had to do with organized religion. And so I think when you watch those fights, they're supposed to be seen as more, you know, when that first fight in the mud happens, I think it's like 1910 or 1911. And it's like, Day-Lewis easily wins the fight. And it's clearly like capitalism and oil and money is becoming more and more powerful than religion. And then by the end of the movie, when he has to bludgeon them with the the bowling pin, you know, this is really, and that's 1927 at that point, supposedly right on the crash of the stock market, but it's like, this is the point when we are going to become godless and slaves to capitalism for the rest of time. It's sort of like my, my rough interpretation of that ending, I guess. I think there's a lot to be like, you could do a whole fucking paper on the, what's being said about capitalism and religion in this movie. But I think, that main conflict is sort of what's being represented in those fights physically, in the physical form, I guess. Um, I don't know if that helps at all, but that's what I interpret when I'm watching this. No, that helps. But like, I was picking up on that. Like that's, yeah, the, like, that's, the, that's what some people find it too blatant. No, I mean, the, the, my, 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 my problem more so is that like the fights themselves were just, it was like pathetic and not and, like, I think like it, I'm sure I hear what you're saying and it may just be lost on me, but like, I think it's either you have the beating be more severe. I know he dies the second one, but it's just like, it felt very dramatic. And like, like the, those two fights and some of the scenes between the two of them, like some of them work when they work, they're great. And other times, like one of them is blowing the other, when he's blowing them off the screen, it's just like, feels like almost like, I don't want to call it like a play, but like, it's just like almost too dramatic. Like, I hear you. No, it is. Uh, and Day-Lewis is on a lot of stage acting, so it's like he, he does have that level to him where it's like he's almost coming out of the screen and he feels like he's like in front of your face or something. It, so wor- it works for him, though. Like, he, I, he yeah. was great. Um, like, one of the things I would have liked more of, and again, like I, I don't want to be going into, like, the things it's I dislike, but the, the thing, so the way I look at the movie is, and like I, I read the Wikipedia article afterwards and it didn't occur to me at the time, but one of the criticisms is that there's no women in the movie. And I actually think that's a pretty fair criticism. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time, like um, I also think like the frontier, there might not necessarily have been, this, yeah, this is a Western movie, but it's still like, this is 1900, like frontier is still like young or fresh or however you want to put it. Like, there's, I, I don't think it's crazy to think that this guy, people out in the middle of nowhere, all these men working, like wouldn't have a lot of women around. But um, I think that's one of the conceits of the movie. And like in the, one of his opening monologues, he says, you know, I'm a family man. I run my family business with my son. And you get this impression that it would, all of his workers are family men too. And then you see them set up the tents. It's just a bunch of dudes that are going to work. And it's like, I think it's just all part of the lies that he tells people to get what he wants. This is the thing. I think this is, the, this is my actual big critique with the movie. I know I've said a lot of things, but this is the thing that really kind of why I would disappointed me. And the reason I'm not like, it doesn't rank higher for me or I'm not going to rank it higher than the master 
is that you never see him how he works with these guys like the um, his right hand man like you see him dominate all these people but like the old closest thing you get is I can't remember if there's like some judge or he has some exchange of this like subtle exchange with a guy at the train and it's like a friend it's a lawyer I think and it's, it's like guy, it's a guy from Standard Oil yeah and he like basically winks him tells him to go east but that's the only time you see like more of a char- like he's a swindler and the thing the dynamic I thought between um, Plainview and Eli is that they're both swindlers one's using capitalism and one's using religion but I think I thought Plainview recognized that. And maybe I think that was like something Eli also recognized in plain view. Like they're using different ways to gain power and control over people. <clears throat> oh, where was I going with that? Um, it's totally true. You're right on about all that stuff. And um, I can't remember where, where, where was I going with that? I was. Um, I think what happens, I hear, I sort of hear your point that it's like you don't really see him with his workers or his crew as much. But I think what sort of happens is like he ends up. Um, being much more um, on the business, and like you, what you see him end up doing is taking meetings with Standard Oil and Union Oil. And at one point, Standard Oil offers to basically make him a millionaire for his wells at this place called Little Boston. By the way, Little Boston, the whole thing is—it's basically the story of Bakersfield, California, mm-hmm. um, which is a town that's like an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. That would basically be a nowheresville fucking nothing town if they didn't find this oil there back in the early 1900s or whatever. And so, um, I, I totally lost where I was going with that Bakersfield point. <laughs> um, oh, well, I think you were hitting on it, but you actually picked up right where I was trying to look left off. And like, you let me know and you remember what you were going to yeah, say. He was, he was more taking business meetings. And so it's like, uh-huh. at one point, Standard offers to buy him out at Little Boston for like, a million bucks basically and he turns it down because he's out of his mind of course and uh, he decides to build a pipeline and make a deal with Union Oil and this way it's like he can make all the money from his oil without needing the railroads to transport anything and he's, he makes a ton more money and ends up yeah like a gazillionaire by the 1920s or whatever very similar um, to sort of what Rockefeller and uh, some of these other people did yeah it's also loosely based on that uh, oil book by Upton Sinclair, which I've read like a little bit of. I, I wish I, I should get a copy of that. But, um, so I don't know where I was going with that. No, no worries. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess that's the thing. It's like, you, they only show a few aspects of this like great man. Like you, it's yeah, for, just more of that working culture kind of thing. It's like two hours and 45 minutes. And yeah, th- like at the time, in the first 15 minutes, I was like, oh, they haven't given any dialogue. They could have wrapped, they could have done that. They could have just cut that whole 15 minutes off and started with like, and have it be like a surprise that the sun wasn't his. Like, there was a lot of things they could have the done differently. One, personally, I like those first 15 minutes. The first part of it, when he, he's in a silver mine, uh, has a bad fall, breaks his leg, still collects the thing of silver, then pulls himself out of the mine, and then there's a pan up into the fucking mountains, and you realize how far this guy's gonna have to crawl. And it's one of those things where. I think it's subtle, but it's also like this is a like a being coming out of the pit of the bottom of the earth. Like it's almost like Satan himself is pulling himself out and dragging himself back to civilization or something. Like I think it's a little more symbolic than people might realize. Just that very opening part. I actually love that read. I did not pick up on that. No, I knew I, I knew the distance. I thought he had a horse or something. Yeah. I didn't realize he was dragging himself. I thought he, or he got picked up. I didn't assume he dragged no, I didn't himself back. It. It's like they pull up. 
and there's that. Oh, by the way, another thing I I was uh, I couldn't when I was watching last night. I was like, I'm loving the score. I love the music. Who did this? And then I realized it's Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, the guitar player. Ah. Um, so I think it's really cool that him and Paul Thomas. I know Johnny Greenwood also helped him in another movie. I think it's. I just think that's cool that they have that connection now. It's kind of like the Fincher Trent Reznor connection. I like that. that. Yeah, I think it's cool that they. But it's uh, yeah. In the score, it's like there's that one note he hits on the pan up. The the, the same. The, I want to say the same music was used in the Hurt Locker actually, like a year later, um, which was kind of weird too. But love the score. I like Johnny Greenwood. Um, and yeah, the other thing about that beginning, so it's like you have that silver mine part, but then you also sort of have like you get to see the basics of oil mining in that part where it's like they go down into these wells, they have to like drop this pin to like make the oil bubble up. And then, you know, they have to do all these things. And it's all this dangerous fucking shit that at any, you know, any pulley breaks, anything goes down. It's like something you got a thousand pounds lying on your head. So I just want to say in response to that, one thing that kind of bothered me was this genius capitalist has like three major accidents with his freaking drills in the first 30 minutes of the movie he's got like two accidents in the beginning like that was just something that but like i get that's how they generated the action but like there he had a lot of a lot of mistakes that maybe that's the lesson well yeah i took that as that was when he was working on those crews and it's like by the time he's like an oil man is like when he's on his own operation and he's even in his speech he's like hey I use my own men. I don't lose my tools down the road and shit. Like, I don't fuck up this way and that way. He's kind of mentioning things that happened in those earlier scenes. <laughs> so I think it's like, I think he was like a silver prospector. He had a terrible broken leg accident, and then he decided I'll be on like an oil crew and work with people. But then it's like he kind of runs into all the hazards that you'd run into being on an early oil crew like that. And then it's like, now he's a by the time he's at Little Boston, he's like, look, I've established this other well. Which he sells to, to Standard Oil for like a hundred grand or something in that meeting. He's just like, that's a deal. It's one of my favorite lines. Because <laughs> it's like, this guy, he goes into all this detail about the other well and how much it's producing and like what's really happening. He's just like, well, off you $150,000. He's like, that's a deal. Next <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, yeah, my interpretation of that beginning is like, like it's, it's progressive where it's like, he was this silver prospector. Then he kind of learns the oil trade, and then you get his opening monologue to this town that's got an oil river coming out of it, but the townspeople are too confused about what to do with it, and he just walks away from it. And then and then you get sort of the introduction into the Sunday family, which was another weird thing. So apparently Paul Dano was only supposed to play Brother Paul, which is the guy that takes the $500 from Daniel Plainview for the information about where the oil is. And that guy apparently goes off and becomes an oil man himself, but... Apparently, a different actor was supposed to play the Eli character, who was supposed to be the, the preach. And at some point, PTA was like, why don't we make them twins, and you just play both parts. And it's like, it, I think it's totally fair to criticize PTA for that decision. I think it's fair to criticize Paul Dale for the part. I just, I guess I would say after watching it a number of times, I don't feel like Paul Dale is swinging and missing. I just think you come away feeling like this should just be a better, just somebody with more gravitas to go back and forth with. Lewis, you took the word out of you literally took the word out of my mouth. I was going to say yeah. I like Paul Dano, and he's had some great performances, but he just doesn't have the gravitas in this movie to stand with uh, with Day Lewis. Honestly, I think it's kind of been a cloud that's hung over Dano the rest of his career, where it's like people never really thought he deserved this part and stuff like that. You know, it's like to be the opposite Day Lewis in a movie like this is like, I mean, it's an open opportunity, and it's like I get what people. 
I also just think it, it's like it's a little unfair to come down on him that hard because it's like who the fuck isn't gonna get blown away by Daniel Davis movie like this? But it, you know, I don't know. I'm a little conflicted about the whole Pantano thing at this point. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. Even the the brother, the fake brother, gives a better he gives a better performance off Lewis than I think Dano does outside of the church scene or. Like, the fake brother's interesting where he's like, I prefer it better if you don't think I'm dumb. And like, they try to ask him a couple of questions, but he's like, yeah, just give me the money. I'll give you the info and we'll go our separate ways. The fake brother, I did not. I'm sorry, I was talking about Paul. You're talking about Yeah, no, 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 no. The real, like, the actual, I'm saying the actual fake brother yeah, yeah. did a much better, that actor was able to give a good performance off of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. So I got... That's a pretty good, good actor, actually. Um, He's good. Part though, that's a like people kind of feel like the plot gets off track with that fake brother part. Um, I think, I think it, it's. A, I think it's a little uh, unnecessary. It should have the movie would have been better if you can cut that out, and it should culminate with uh, with him killing him, and that's the first murder. That would be my opinion. Edited, that they edited out a lot of the fake brother stuff, but I will say a couple of uh, Day Lewis's best scenes involve that character, including like the part where he's like, "I have a competition in me," and he kind of explains his ethos yeah. and how much hatred he has for people and stuff. And then there's the part sort of where he has to shoot him, which is pretty emotional for Day Lewis. And so I, I think I realized on this watch that I think a lot of those scenes stayed in because uh, it's some of the Day Lewis's most powerful stuff. And I also think. It's interesting the way H.W., we haven't really talked about the kid, who I think is a great actor in this movie, too. Um, H, the H.W.'s reaction to sort of realizing that the brother's fake and trying to light him on fire, and just everything going on with him being deaf and the father, you know, it's like, even just sort of watching it through the prism of a father and son thing is, is pretty interesting. Um, and dealing with a kid who has deafness at that point in time and stuff is, like, pretty tough to deal with. <laughs> so here's my question uh, regarding that. Do you think at the end, so at the end of the film, the son wants to leave with his wife and uh, Plainview's reaction is he considers him a competitor and yep. he, and he tells him all the things that you, you, you never want to say. He tells him he's yep. adopted. He never loved him. He was You're just, a bastard in a basket. <laughs> exactly. Like all of the worst things. But my question is, do you think he meant that or do you think he was hurt? Cause I have my answer, but I'm just curious to see what you think. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, he seems genuinely emotional about HW when he has to put him on the train and leave him and like actually abandon him kind of. And he knows it's like he has to keep working on the oil deck and he knows he has to do something about this kid and it's just like he doesn't have the time or anyone from this town that can really help him. But he seems genuinely emotional about it. And, I, and, and in other scenes, you know, when he has to announce to the church that he's abandoned his child, he seems emotional about it. And when HW comes back and he gives him that hug, Seems like he's happy, but you know, HW slaps in the face, which is you know completely warranted. But um, I, I think that relationship is interesting. At the end, I mean, that's a hard read uh, in terms of where that character is or how much the alcohol is talking. Um, I think at the end, he's such a bitter man that he no longer gives a shit about it. It's like he's made so much money. Like HW was only a prop for him to really make money and help this business go. And so I think. By the time he's in that mansion, just signing checks and stuff, I don't know how much he really cares about it. I mean, he clearly, I mean, he doesn't say anything nice to him. So I don't, I don't know if there's still like a deeper layer inside of Daniel Plainview that like has is like the so emotional thing for HW. Uh, the optimist in me, I think there is because my thing is, I think there's a lot of emotion from Day Lewis there, even though he tries to come off as cold. 
but he goes through a lot of effort to try and hurt him. And I think it's because he's hurt. And I don't, I'm not saying he loves him. I think he might be a psychopath, but uh, I think it's like whatever he can come closest to, like whatever his uh, closest thing to love he has or his version of love. I think it's on HW. Cause I do think what my takeaway from him shooting the fireside scene is one of my favorites when he shoots the fake brother. I think that amazing is scene. amazing. scene. Amazing how they shot that scene. Everything about it. My, my whole problem with that is like I had in my notes, as soon as they introduced this guy, I was like, when are they going to figure out he's a fake brother? And then it's like, wait, it took way too long. And none of the little kid did first, but uh, my whole thing, I didn't like it. I thought it was like a complete, like it wasn't, it was a red herring in the worst way. You saw it coming a mile away. But what I did like about it was that fire fireside scene. So the, my takeaway is that he wants family. Like whether it's illusion or not, he wants a family. He takes the he pretends the bastard's his own. He takes in this guy, and I think he knows he's a fake the whole time. So so my takeaway is that when he's like cursing off HW, it's because uh, no, like I don't I don't think he loves him. I don't think he's like. He, he he's hurt. He's being abandoned again in the same yes. way. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think we're good. Sorry, sorry, Seth. You were saying about uh, his relationship with HW. Um, oh, and whether or not he uh, he was being real. Yeah, again. like the the vitriolic reaction from him could be more of a sign of his deeper. That's probably a good read by you, actually. That it's like it's really more of a sign of like this was the one person I thought I had an attachment to, and now you're leaving me. And it's like, you were the one kind of thing I had left. And so it's like, as he leaves him, he says all the things that will make him never come back. By the way, my favorite thing was the son just claps back. Like, the son is, I think, the most impressive character in the whole film. He's now, not, he's deaf, but like, he's clearly a capable man. Yeah. I'm sure he's got some, I know he's not going to get his father's wealth, but I'm sure he's got something stored away. Like, you see him leave the room as the victor, because his, his dad says all this awful crap. And then at the end, the son's like, yeah, I'm glad I don't have any of you in me. And he just walks out. And it's like the only time you really see uh, Plainview being get the better of in a situation. And it's I think, true. I think there's something to that. And it's like I also think there's something to say, like, not that, not that you expect him to kill him there, but, like, the movie could have gone that route. I think whether it's love or whatever, I think that's the closest he comes is with yeah. that relationship with that boy. I also, I just, I think the kid was a great actor. Apparently, he wasn't a trained actor. They just found some kid in West Texas or something, and I thought he's just really genuine and good. He was awesome. Like, so what you kind of touched on this with Day Lewis and some other movies. The movie's physical performance in this were incredible, and that seems seems weird to say about a kid, but a lot of the movie is this like dad and the kid. You see them walking, and it's like whether it's into meetings, out of meetings, like working, like camping. And it's like yeah. you see this old guy who's like got a limp, but he's like still pretty rigorous, and this little kid, and just is like this. And uh, to me, the the best parts of the movie are it's them. Like I really like like the first two thirds of the movie when it's them, and I think the movie kind of suffers once he sends the kid away because it took away one of the few uh, likable things. And he's the only likable character in the whole movie is the actual kid. Yeah, HW is, and like maybe the girl that he kind of marries. And the. Uh, the right hand man, I like too. Uh, yeah, I like that actor. I think it's Sirian. Yeah, uh, Sirian Hines. I can't remember his name, but like when I, I wish you'd seen like why did this guy respect Plainview? I wish you got to see like how he was able to get these rough men respect. Yeah, him. like why, how did this guy become the right hand man kind of thing? Yeah, like and it's just like you see him dominate. You, you see him manipulate people who don't know any better. You see him uh, 
negotiate with oil guys who he knows more than he's like, uh, and then right. you also see him like talk to the Plainview family and all, and you see him interact with this kid and he treats the kid pretty well most of the movie, but it's like, you miss it. more worried about the kid than Plainview is weird. Like uh, that's one of the crazy, so the, the oil derrick fire scene, which is, I, I think, an incredibly shot scene. So I mixed up the fire scenes earlier. No, I'm so glad you brought that up. By the way, that is one of my favorite. That's an incredible sequence. Incredible. And the lighting and the, just the, the set piece that's happening, it's like a 60-foot fire, and he's swinging the camera around it, and you got plain view and, like, this oil-slicked crazed mode. Um, there's a lot going on, and, like, the music's really good in that scene. I think that's one of the best scenes in the movie. But uh, in that scene, that's when H.W. loses his hearing, and it's like, Sierra Heinz is like, is H.W. okay? And Plainview is like, nope. But it's like, why aren't you happy? We have an ocean of oil under us, and we can get to it. And it's like, he's not even thinking about H.W. He's just like, can you believe how much oil is underneath us right now? But he did, he was concerned for H.W. He, like, took him, like... Well, yeah, he took him in there and was like, something's wrong with him. That's why I say, like, I think, he, like, he's concerned. Right. Like, yeah. he has an attachment up to whatever level he could have. If really, he had it wasn't his primary, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. But, like, that's... He's the monster. By the way, I love that. The reading of him, like, crawling out of the earth or escaping hell. I think that makes that's, a lot of sense. Well, that's one of the... So, like, in that, you know, if you take... Um, a lot of creative writing classes or whatever, they'll tell you there's like these 15 stories that are just told over and over and over yeah. again. And one of those stories is just like the story of the most evil man you can fucking think of. And like, that's like, like Henry VIII, the Shakespeare play, same kind of thing. It's like, this is the most evil fucking king you can think of. And so I think this kind of, it kind of plays into that actually, where it's like, I think PTA realized it's like, I'm just creating a character that's so evil. It's like, he's coming out of the depths of hell to, be, to begin this thing. It's like, he's not even coming out of the surface of earth. Like he's, he's, he's subterranean. You know? <laughs> well, I think that, that, that makes so much sense when you say that. Cause also talking about the fire scene, it's literally fire and oil, like spewing from the earth, yeah. subterranean, like thonic, whatever the word is. Like, it's this sub it's, like it's monolithic, yeah, and it's like there's so much you see the cross of the church too across the way, and yes, flaming oil Derek, and it's just like oh my gosh, and it's just you see him, it's like he's worshiping, like they do this cut where he's standing there, I think it's from like day to night or night to day, just kneeling in front of the it's fire. Yeah, most of it's shot during the magic hour, which makes it even more impressive. Because what what's like, the magic hour? The magic hour is when it's sort of after sunset at dusk or right right before sunrise at dawn, you know? And so if you watch that, the lighting of the outside is consistent. So it's like they had to do the, the primary shots of that fire scene were all done in one night because that's the only way you could do it with the exact same lighting that way during the magic hour like that. It's a really, it's like one of those things where it's like Terrence Malick uh, kind of invented shooting at the ma magic hour. Now uh, that guy that did the Revenant, Alejandro Iñárritu, I think, he loves shooting during the magic hour now. Like the whole Revenant movie is kind of shot during that period. It's a really, it's a hard thing to do because it's like you get all this interesting lighting, but you'll only get it that exact way for that one dawn or that one dusk. You know? Well, that makes sense why that film took so long to film then, because it was like yeah. I knew it took a long time. Okay, that makes sense. Well, it's it works, but all these movies but are beautiful. It drives your crew fucking crazy because everyone's up at like five thirty in the morning, or everyone's like only working during these, these like set two hours. It's really tough to pull off, and so it's like the fact that that oil derrick scene is like the kind of the biggest production productive scene in the movie, and they do it during the magic hour, and it's like all the main characters are involved with it. It's a pretty amazing scene. It's incredible. By the way, if you hear knocking, I'm sorry, but there's work being done in the apartment either next to me, oh, above right. me, or 
below me. I have no idea, but there's knocking. So I apologize if it's not being picked up. Jake is masturbating the entire time. If I could make that noise, that would be impressive. Um, uh, my favorite thing about that too is I was kept thinking, I was like, how are they going to like shut this fire down? It's like this massive roaring fire. And I was like so curious and they showed it and I'm so glad they did. And it was such, it was such a funny, like human solution. Like, Oh, how do you do it? Oh, you put in four huge barrels of explosives and you just blow it up and hopefully it crumbles down and stops the fire. It's like, Oh yeah, of course you do that. Yeah. Was, yeah, there's stuff that's like, I mean, I've never been to an oil derrick or worked on an oil, you know, even been to one, but it's like you start sort of learning all these interesting things about it just from watching the movie. Well, it's just so cool given the technology. I was just like so interested to see with the technology they had at the time, how they do yeah. it. Like, and they didn't and just disappoint. The, the dangers that were involved with everything. And you could tell it's like human casualties was, you know, that was just part of the amount of money they were making, it, it was enough to, to withstand a, a lot of human casualties. And, that, and this was the same with the railroads. It was the same with a lot of the Industrial Revolution. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, they're, they're, when there's money, there's usually people willing to, to risk stuff. Yeah. Also, because especially on oil more so than anything, like you had the chance to hit it big. Yeah. Or gold, too, I guess, for that matter. All those miners. It's also interesting the way that Eli, every disaster that happens at the, at the Derrick, whether, you know, it's a guy dying in the well or there's a big fire and H.W. loses his hearing, Eli just attributes it to, well, you should have let me bless the well. Like, why didn't you let me bless the well? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Is the, talking about the blessing of the well. What's your take? Um, I liked the mood plan you made where it was like, hey, why can't this little girl bless it? Like, why do you, why do you need to bless it? And also it was kind of like, you're clearly trying to take credit for the well. So I'll still get the blessing and you don't have to come up here and do it. I like, I like the movie made because I didn't, I didn't feel like he took away the blessing. He still blessed it. He just used the other girl. Like, is that now? Why can't she bless the well? <laughs> I, I, I think now, do you think it was cursed or do you think it was just, cause I kind of subscribe to the fact there might've been something I don't want to say supernatural because I do think Eli was a fraud, but maybe there is something there, like maybe just like bad karma or just like jinxing it. I think, well, I, I prefer to view it as that there is no, there is no God or curses involved in this story and that it's just what happened was sort of like happenstance and that these two characters are just so, there's so much evil inside of both of them. The conflict was going to happen regardless. So it's like, there's no curse or any of that. It's just these two people are the two most horrible people you could imagine. And they would take any small thing to take to escalate the conflict between them okay i actually i like that take i like that read uh but i mean you could totally read it as like you know what god uh needed to have that well blessed now that you <laughs> well i don't know if, i don't know if god's the one i was saying like maybe uh maybe he was praying to something different you never know he's a swimmer uh I, yeah, yeah, but uh no because uh it was certainly bad karma well, I, I was interested to see where it went because, like, a couple things happened. There's, like, a few fatalities, and then there's the the explosion, and the boy goes deaf. And I was, like, curious. I didn't really expect it to go down a very supernatural path, but I was curious, like, is there going to be more stuff? And it kind of crescendoed with the, the boy going deaf. I don't remember there being too many more, like, big things after that. I know there's some more conflict. but yeah, um, the, the other thing that happens is that uh, Plainview is caught killing his fake brother by Bandy. And he needs Bandy to make his pipeline. And so Bandy doesn't want money. He wants Plainview to get baptized um, because he kind of 
kind of realized that he killed somebody out in his area. That also was so contrived. That was, like yeah, I had a like, real problem with that. Catch this guy murdering somebody, and all you want to do is get a baptism. And but it's yeah, like it felt like the bad. sole reason they had the fake brother there, like so there could be some something to force him to get this baptism. It was like it's that and the HW thing kind of figuring him out. There, there's like yeah, there's been some criticism about the fake brother. Although like we both said, we both kind of like the actor. No, and it, that's the hard thing. But like just so it's it's like two hours and thirty seven, thirty eight minutes. Uh, the movie actually ends at like two twenty seven, two twenty eight with like, credits. It was like a three hour movie. Honestly. Yeah, but and like that's why I'm like the first few minutes are cool, but by the end I'm like you probably could have shaved a couple off there. Um, but I, I get why they're important, especially with the son. I actually didn't realize the kid was adopted, so uh, I thought he was so, his yeah. own kid. No, it's like if you watch those early scenes, his friend. It's it, it, I, this is something I kind of missed when I first watched it too, but. It's like his buddy dies. You see his friend holding this baby, and then you see uh, Day Lewis kind of off to the side, like smoking a cigarette. And then the next scene is them both down in that well, and the one guy dies, and it's just happenstance that Day Lewis lived. And then Day Lewis comes back out, and he's just staring at the kid, and he like he's like, "Okay, I'll put some whiskey on the nub of this uh, milk bottle." By the way, the parenting of Daniel Plainview, I have to say, just dump some whiskey in the milk and make him chug it, or you know, put some. <laughs> Every solution is just have the kid drink whiskey. Uh, I mean, boy, what a father! <laughs> that was actually in my notes, and I was like, "Love that move." That's of well, not pouring that much in. But the, that's why I, I didn't realize. Looking in hindsight, when I knew that, I realized that was the scene where it was like showing that he was taking the kid. I didn't realize that at the time. Oh yeah, but that's yeah. an old Irish move, just rubbing a little uh, whiskey on a kid's gums when they're teething so they can fall asleep. Yeah, yeah, it is like an old. I've heard people do that, but like to see somebody like actually do that, it's pretty funny. Well, rubbing it on the gums is one thing. Pouring like a good amount into a like a milk bottle, which was like almost empty, like that. That's it was a little aggressive, but uh, and, hey, he raised him well. Um, I, so he the the thing with the blessing, I don't I think it was. I I don't think it. I was just gonna say I don't think it was supernatural with the uh, with the blessing of the well and everything. I thought they were gonna go there, but in hindsight, it wasn't. Um, especially baptism, as, like Vandy wanting a baptism instead of money, or try, like taking him to a sheriff and being like, "I just caught this guy killing somebody." I think that's pretty contrived. But I do think the baptism scene is like amazing. It's probably one of the three or four best scenes in the movie. So it's like, I don't. It doesn't bother me too much that we got to that point. Okay, so I'm going to ask you now that you said that. I think there are some great scenes. So we're talking about three or four best. I'll put that baptism scene in my top four too. Um, yeah. Just because, like, as I think that's the only time Dana is is really like winning or like even like coming up to close to uh, Daniel Day Lewis, and because even in that scene, Day Lewis is getting slapped. All over it's the, the place. It's the only time that, that Dano gets to like be physically violent to Plainview and gets to demean him in front of people. It's the only time he gets the upper hand and it, like he takes full advantage. <laughs> and he whoops the shit out of him. But still, like Plainview almost wins that scene. Like DDL, like he's not like it's close. I know he's, his line reads are amazing. Where it's like, "Do you want the blood?" He's like, "Yes, I do." <laughs> like, the way he reads his lines are so unbelievable. He's great, uh, and his performance is awesome. Like I, I do, that to me is the best thing about that part about the movie uh, is David Day Lewis. I'm just gonna start calling him DDL. So yeah, DD- I agree. Yeah, I think I, so. I would say the the oil derrick fire scene, um, the two sort of church scene scenes where Eli is performative, I think are really good. 
Um, I thought, yeah, also the scene where H.W. tries to burn uh, the fake brother. And then you see Day-Lewis, like, that part, it's really subtle. You, like, PTA kind of pans to the doorway, and you see Day-Lewis just kind of catch his breath for a second, and then he just fucking chases after the kid. And he was like, I would not want to be that kid right now. No, 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 no. Um, uh, so I think that's a good, and then I also think, I think the final scene between, uh, Day-Lewis and you, I, I enjoy that scene a lot. Uh, I've heard similar critiques to what you've sort of said about it. Um, I find it to be really good. I think some of the, you know, it's, again, it's a lot of the stuff that seems interesting because it's like, you're trying to figure out what the fuck happened to Eli and like, what did you invest in? Where did you go? What city did you get involved in? Like, how did you get all fucked up? Now you're drinking liquor. Like who the fuck is this guy now? And it's like, there's just so much happening that happened off screen. It's like, he's kind of an interesting character because it's like, you just don't know all the details to him yet. Um, I also think the interaction between like what Day-Lewis makes him do <laughs> is pretty hilarious when you like really think about it to, to make a, to make like a priest break down and just admit that he's a false prophet and a God to superstition. It's one of those things where it's like, there's a part of me that, so again, I think you were a little critical of both fight scenes, but like, there's a part of me that really enjoys it. And like when he slaps Eli and throws him in the mud, I'm just like, oh, if I could just do that to a priest, I would feel amazing. And then it's like, oh man, if I could just have a priest admit that he's full of shit, like how great would that, like there is a part of me that loves that stuff. There's a sadistic side of me, Jake. I don't know. But, um, well, I, I definitely think there's a play you can put on it. It's that like, maybe just like, capitalism is taking over from where the church used to be, but at the same time, capitalism is putting like the church or I don't want to say church, but what should be the false church, like false prophets, like the worst parts of the church you can read into it or all of it, however you want to read it. But it's like, he he is punishing. There's a part of you that can root for him because he's clearly punishing this false prophet. And this, I don't, I mean, I definitely think he's a false prophet. I do not like (laughs) it was that whole thing. It was, he's great. I would say he's great, but it's like his whole shtick, like he's definitely a false prophet. And yeah, he's getting some comeuppance. And I don't think he deserves to die. Um, and when it comes to that... Yeah, to me, the death is much more of a symbolic thing. Although at the same time, at the personal level, it's like at that point for Plainview, I could see him being kind of drunk and just killing that kid. <laughs> I could see it too. I mean, now this is the other question. Do you think he got away with it? Uh, that's a good question. I think that, so another, we haven't quite touched on it yet, but I think the last line of this movie is subtly becoming one of the more famous last lines of any movie. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I think the I'm finished has... No, Rosebud. Yeah, Rosebud's up there for sure. I think I'm finished has multiple meanings. Um, clearly, it's like, I think he's sort of... I think even Day-Lewis is kind of saying that as himself, like, I'm finished acting now, like, he's done this performance. I think it's also, like, the character is admitting he's completely finished as, like, a person. I think, in a way, inside of him, he knew his 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 true conflict, sort of his, like, um, Ahab type of conflict was to, to triumph over Eli, and so once he kills Eli, he feels like he's finished, and then I, I'm sure there's a side of him that's like, you know what? Someone might find out about this. I'm sure other people knew Eli, maybe told someone he's coming here. Maybe I am finished. You know, maybe I'm going to jail now. I think he's just finished on all levels, where it's like, he's such an alcoholic, it's like, what's the point of him really continuing his business? Uh, you know, I think he's done everything he needed to do with his, with his life, everything he intended to do. 
and it's like he's finished. <laughs> I I agree with the part way. I, I agree with all that. Like I think he's someone who HW leaving wasn't as big a deal because he'd already used him to build the fortune. He had as much money as he'd ever need. He could never spend it all. And so I, but the way I look at it is like, I do think there's multiple meanings, but I don't think it's hitting on all those levels. I like, I don't necessarily think, uh, like the way I look at it as he's not sitting there saying like, Oh, I'm finished. Like it's over. Like I'm going like, this is the end of it for me. Cause this, cause I killed this guy. I think it's more almost like he just finished an awesome dinner and he's like, ah, I'm finished. Like that was so, when I first watched it. That was totally how I took it. I, I was like, "Oh, I just finished dinner." That was a funny way to end it. And then my brother was like, "No, that had multiple meanings." <laughs> no, no, no. And I, I do think there are multiple meanings. I think it might be more though, like the Daniel Day Lewis, and also just from the movie. Like the movie ends. Yeah. I'm finished. Yeah. Like it's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I don't. I agree with all of them. I just don't think that it's him saying, "Oh, I'm finished." Because he's killed his own brother. He went out with his brother. He didn't come back. And no one... I see what yeah. you You don't think he, he's not going to jail. It's like the saying. world that they live in, I don't see there's a justice system that's going to put this yeah. guy in jail. That, that's my honest opinion. And I, that, I'm not saying that to be cynical, but just I, like I, he killed I, another guy. Yeah. He was caught and nothing happened. And he benefited like from it. <laughs> um, but that's the thing too. But that that's the missing component of this movie. You have the capitalism, you have business and religion, but not no government. And I, I think it's a movie that could have benefited oh, from maybe did. like a, a, a like government a character. I mean, there was it was 1900. There were like governors out there. Like there, it was a state. Like a, well, you, maybe a sheriff. A sheriff would have been interesting too. Or something. Yeah, sheriff would have been interesting. Not a bad point. Maybe maybe you make it a little fantastical. And I'm not saying this to me, but there's like a. A mayor, a female mayor. That's how you get a female in there. I do. That. There's something about the stripped down allegory that I think it's it's like it's just very like this is what's what happened in this century, and it's like there's no. I think I think PTA wanted to kind of like he. I think in his other movies and especially Magnolia, the meanings of things got very lost, and I wonder if going into this, he was like, no one's gonna confuse what I'm fucking saying with this movie. And he's just like, I'm going to make very strong points about capitalism and religion and what happened in the 20th century. And I think that, I, yeah, like I think, I feel like that was just PTA's primary mission was just capitalism versus religion. And he didn't want to muddy it with anything. And he just kind of went out. I, I, I feel like that, the first, like I, from what I know, the first like 100 pages of the Upton Sinclair book, Oil, is basically about that too. Um, not that, uh, but I do hear your point though, that it would be interesting to have somebody kind of represent the government or something. Um, but I think that like for PTA, it's like his allegory, he tried to strip it down and make it as simplistic as possible. And for the, and by doing that, it like there's a power that you instill in it. But then I also think it's like some of what you're saying, it's like it's a little like you could have used some more, done some more things here. So well, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I totally agree with your take. But look, I guess my nuance on it is that I think it is stripped down, and I like that. I just think it's a little long, and I think it's almost like an incomplete story. Not that you yeah. need a romance or necessarily a woman character, but there's also – I always think about uh, 30 Rock, and there's a whole joke about them needing the third heat for the show to work. And But, like, I'm a big – like, you you have this – really long movie and it's like a duopoly just between these two characters, but there's a total imbalance between plain view and 
Eli. Right. And I think it would have benefited from maybe you have the government, maybe the government's as ineffectual as Eli. I don't know what the thing is. And maybe his claim is that it's just that, like that the government, there could be a meaning there that the government's so ineffectual, like you don't even need him in this, especially at this time, because they was either under the take of one or the other. But that's asking a lot for the reader. That, I mean, the, the watcher, that's kind of like Prometheus, like, I'm taking yeah. a couple leaps there. Like when you're talking about America, when you're doing a two hour and 40 minute movie or two and a half hour movie about America and the boom and everything and economics and religion and the power structure, like how do you not have any like real political representation? And that like, <laughs> so I think, well, my take on that now that I'm thinking about it is that at that time, and this was totally true, government officials were really owned by the Rockefellers and the JP Morgans and the, the, the big time uh, industrialists. And so I think. Like, yeah, yeah, but to that point, then why is yeah. it like, where's the story of how he's able to get these drilling rights and land over okay, the standard yeah, oil? Well, yeah, I think there should be scenes of him like bribing the railroads and buying senators, stuff like that. There's why why not have a court scene where it's with standard oil suing him for the rights to a well and you get to see like a court judge's room scene, like, or him bribing yeah. someone to get out of it? Like, I'm just. It's kind of. The problem for me is that government, whether corrupt or not, and if his, if the argument is it's saying how corrupt it was at the time that there, it was basically a swinging door. It didn't matter. You didn't need them. They weren't part of the situation. Okay, I get it. But in two and a half hours with like no females in it and just like really a few characters <laughs> and tons and 15 minutes without any words at the beginning, like don't take that much time and then tell me you don't have time to do certain things. So, okay, well, okay, I hear those, but those are fair criticisms. Um, I do think you mentioned uh, how the movie's sort of imbalanced between Plainview and Eli, and I think a little of that is um, the, one of the, I guess, I guess I would say the primary movie this is drawing from is Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a movie that's all about greed, and this is a, this movie's a lot sort of different than Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but that greed aspect, I think, is still one of the primary things, and it's like, um, I think the reason Plainview is the central is the main character is just because not only does I think capitalism kind of take over power from religion in the 20th century, or I, I guess we should be saying organized religion and like yeah. capitalist religion. I mean, the Vatican is uh, the Vatican for a reason. People, they got a lot of money out of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I, I think that's a good distinction. Um, it's this, and we're not knocking organized religion, yeah. but there's no doubt that they were one of the most driving political economic forces and socio, like they were, yeah, they were, had their hands in everything. Like for 2000 years, that was probably the biggest force of the world was religion, which yeah. is like a huge thing. And so the, the idea that capitalism and business and industry is sort of taking that power away from religion. I, I do think that's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. Um, no, I just don't even know where I was going. Oh well, the one the one thing I want to say you're talking about imbalance, and I think you're I think what you were oh, talking yeah. about. Yeah, I was just saying it's plain because it's like he's kind of trying to do this Sierra Madre thing where it's like he's he's representing greed, and that's the primary thing. But. And to I guess I shouldn't be doing this, but to counteract my own point, talking about the imbalance, there's two things I want to bring up. One is like total nerd out moment. There's this uh, I used to read. I love comic books. There's this Cable comic. Cable's this X Men character. Long story short, he's he has to. I'm going too deep into the weeds here, but there's this character, Cable. I was I'm saying that I realize you don't know who he is. Probably no one does. He time travels. He time travels. Okay, so he at some point 
is like has to go somewhere get something and in order to do it he's like comes up against this group of scientists who are benevolent and they're like you we can't give it to you he ends up challenging them to a fight and 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 the lead scientist takes it and it ends up being a really quick fight and at the end it was like they build up to it really big and at the end the uh, cable spares him but the line is and the whole point is like the guy never had a chance it was a warrior versus scientist and it's almost like the the view i'm taking here it's like Dano never had a chance. Organized religion never had a chance. Like they like yeah. like they the whole their whole thing is based on people just not pulling the curtain away, like trusting them on their word. And here's this guy who doesn't give a crap and he has more resources than them. And he's taking their resources. It's him taking their resources and they realize how powerful they are to stop him. Cause like he was the guy a hundred years ago who he'd be doing their dirty work, but now he's now he's just taking it away from them. Right. I also think one of the things that the movie shows really well is like the amount the amount of change that happens in that town. You know, the way plainly he's like the oil is gonna blow gold all over this town and everything's gonna change and it's like your lives will change once this happens. And that really fucking happens. And that's like a real thing, whereas like what Eli's selling is just like it's just like, Hey, keep praying to me and maybe maybe something like that. and it's like he'll take credit for what Plainview's doing. He'll take credit for the for the town changing, but he didn't really take part in it. What's that? And like, I think that to me is like capitalism created real results for better or worse, and you know, and killed everyone in their path to do, create those results. But it still actually created physical results. Whereas, like, just praying to the person in the sky, at the end of the day, people realized that wasn't doing much. I think that's a great take, and the more we talk about it, the movie's definitely rising. So I'm glad we haven't done rankings yet, but. Uh, I think that's a great take, and then when I think about it, it's like, it's true. If you look at capitalism, start with the Renaissance in the middle. By the way, so this is my favorite. I'm going to try and keep this quick. Sure. The, the Black Death was truly awful. Do you know? But it's what started the Renaissance because in the after the Black Death, for the first time, like there weren't millions of peasants in the medieval Europe, or there was a lot less. So they had like they were making money. They were just selling enough to get off, like get off, like right. survive. They finally had extra income, and that is like extra income, extra resources, is what led. And they're it's awful, but they were able to do it because all these people died, and they created a vacuum in the economy at the time. That's interesting. And it was spread out, and instead, and it literally these people were able to rise up and come into it. And the idea being, since then, there's been a general economic boom over the last, whatever, 600 years. Actually, I don't know. I'm not an economist. But where I'm going with this is that, like, the economy can lift more things up than the church. Like, and that's a weird thing to say, but the church, like, talk about Catholic Church for a minute, it's the wealthiest organization on earth. They could literally end world hunger today if they wanted. Like, they have, like, they've got art we don't know about hidden away. They're They're the second biggest, they're the biggest private landowner and if you add up all their real estate across the world, they're like one of the largest countries in the world. It's like them and Scientology. They also they own a huge portion of Southern Manhattan. Like I'm, and that that sounds like I'm not joking. Like I worked in Soho. They have we worked in the building owned by them, and apparently great negotiators. Doesn't surprise me. Um, but we were just talking the Catholic Church, like, and it's not just the Catholic Church. I think the Catholic Church is the most powerful, and that. That's why it might be one of the most corrupt. But like you see it with any organization with power and money, like there's gonna be corruption. But the I, well, so to me it's like before this industrial revolution, the church they 
not only had all the money they were getting tax-free all the time from everyone, they, were, they also had complete and total social control. They had control of people's thoughts and actions. They could create rules for people and change their actions and stuff. And I think like that total control, no entity, you know, no government, no king even had that kind of control. It you need the church's blessing for marriages. You needed the church's blessings for funerals. Yeah. You needed the church's blessings for everything. Like they were owning the land that you were running. Like they owned everything. It's like, yeah, it's like we're only a few hundred years away from when the, it's like just they, it's like it's amazing how like I mean yeah we all have atheists and you know woke people today and stuff but it's like two hundred years ago <laughs> there was, it was a rigid line that everyone followed and it was like uh, for that to change in the short amount of time it did change I think is amazing and we don't yeah it's like we don't really think about it like now we're just like yeah Apple and Google run everything nobody gives a shit like well just to bring it back to the. Uh to the the plague and the renaissance the plague also opened up everyone's eyes that the church couldn't do shit like the, they yeah. were trying to come up with all these they basically for a, however long it lasted kept coming up with different excuses and changing it and like smart not whatever literally people suffered enough and they were finally like okay you really don't know what the fuck you're talking about and it's like that's when you start to listen to real doctors the people who can like actually do medical things you stop listening to like the phonies and the people who are just praying it's like you you have to develop real technologies. It's like it, it, I hear what you're saying with that stuff, and it's I, I don't, and that, that's not, that came up as really harsh. I am a religious person, and I don't blame anyone, whether you're spiritual, religious, or not. I really, it's all up to you. No, I think we all agree though that organized religion has an evil sort of <laughs> bent to it. Though. For uh, this talking about being like a data oriented, like country, generation, world, whatever, like the data pretty much backs up that like the Catholic church killed, they had crusades against Christians like all throughout the middle ages. Like they were killing tons of Christians, like, like who just believed in Jesus in a different way or like, (laughs) and so, and I know I, can I I give you one of my deep reads on Eli? Yeah. Cause I was just, I I, I don't mean to keep bashing the Catholic church. They're just what I know. I know other religions have done other things. So they're done. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Give me a read on Eli. Uh, I got a couple deep reads uh, in this movie, I guess. My, the one I, I was focusing on Eli last night, especially in the finale scene, and um, I don't—I'm not going to stake my reputation to this, but I want to say that I think he's a sexual molester, and I—I I feel like he's giving off a, a vibe to me that it's like he's done—he's gotten in—he's done something, or he's like fucked the wrong boy or something. It just seems to me like he's. He's done something perverted beyond just like getting, you know, making a bad investment. Like I think he's done some real harm to somebody. May I ask why, why you say that? I don't. It was it was the way he's trying to describe to Daniel what kind of trouble he's in, and then it, there's that part where he's like, "The Lord tests you in so many so many ways. He really does." And Daniel's like, "Yes, he does." And then Eli's like, "Yes, he does." It's just like the intensity of what Eli's saying about how much he's been tested. Just it makes me think it's beyond money, but I don't know. That could just be an out there guess. No, no, I actually agree. I thought I thought it went beyond money too. I, I didn't. My mind didn't necessarily go there, although I do see any, that connection. There's no real hint of any of that kind of stuff in the church or with his family. It's like it's it's not backed up with too much evidence. Like my that. thought was actually that I thought he killed someone. That could be. That's 
Like I thought he might have done something too dramatic, just because I, I kind of thought he was a pale reflection of, of Daniel. I, I guess I was like, I don't know, maybe I, I was just like, they got to make a reference to like the, the crazy shit in the church or something. But I mean, you can totally be right that. But I think you're making it. I think that's a common misconception. He wasn't a Catholic priest. He was a like, minister, and I'm not saying that. Right. I'm not it's saying. The church of the Third Revelation or something. Um, yeah, I'm also. That's not to say that, like. One's good, one's bad. Like obviously, Catholic Church has done some bad shit. I think they're probably some diddlers who are ministers or whatever the hell he was. Yes. Uh, my, my point, more so, just being that I think it was a the. I think that's more of a Catholic Church critique. That's my takeaway, and I, I never got. I don't it. think he's really hitting it on it that way. And so, but if that if that is a read, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just trying to say why I don't see it that way. Um, but I did agree with you. I think it went beyond that. My thought was that maybe he got like a girl pregnant or maybe, maybe yeah. he was, like, maybe he assaulted a girl or I don't doubt that he's like in debt, but he, do, he just seems like he's in a situation that's like beyond that or something. I also thought like maybe it was drugs. Like we was in the twenties, yeah, right? Yeah. Maybe it was alcohol. Maybe he was a gambler. Like who, like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. um, the other, so <laughs> another deep take I had last night watching the oil Derek thing. Actually, I think someone mentioned this at the time it came out too, but I think the oil Derek fire, um, and remember this movie came out in 2007. I think it can be taken as a nine 11, uh, analogy. And that sort of the, you know, the world trade center being the epicenter of capitalism in America being bombed, uh, and burning to the ground. I, I don't know if it's a direct, correlation to that but i can kind of i can kind of see that when you're watching that scene i guess it's just like okay this might sound weird but if that's the read i think it's kind of hopeful interesting because if that like obviously 9-11 was awful i mean talk about saying talk about saying things that don't need to be said no no i'm saying like talk about things that don't need to be said that's captain obvious over here but uh if that's the analogy, it's as soon as the fire was out, they went to work. Clearly, we know as New Yorkers, it's not what happened. There was about seven years, eight years where they didn't do shit. They just let it like sit there. But uh, I, uh, to me, if that's what it is, I thought the coolest thing about the fire was that as soon – like I thought it was a disaster. I thought he was devastated by the kid. And like the tragedy there is that he doesn't care about the kid. But like if you're looking at it, like you want to find any hope, it's that this guy – he, he saw the positive and he just saw opportunity and what was clearly a catastrophe. Yeah. This, disaster and he saw opportunity. Everywhere. And all he sees is like, and that's really that maybe that is the curse of capitalism. It's that like you yeah. see, and not to go crazy here, fifth element, that's the whole shtick for the bad guy. The idea that disaster creates opportunity just as much as progress or positive things. And that's really, I mean, uh, Capitalism today, still, it's like, uh, I was just reading an article today about the amount of merchandise that Kobe Bryant uh, merchandise is going for, and and, people, and then this guy gave this passion speech where he was like, you know what, I make investments in merchandise all the time, and I wait for situations like this, and I'm just like a stock or a bond trader, like, don't get mad at me that I saved up my Kobe merch, and now I can sell it, and I was like, man... Capitalism does make people evil. It's like this guy thinks of himself as normal. It's like you're profiting off the death of a famous person in a way. <laughs> I don't know. It's a complicated world, you know. But I don't think that's necessarily evil. Like I honestly, I don't like if that's. No, no I, I get what the guys do. It's like yeah, if you're if you're a 
sports merchandise prospector, you're probably waiting for like Bill Russell or some old guy to die, but if Kobe dies, you know, you gotta still make your money, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I I totally get the argument and I feel awful arguing for this guy, but at the same time, like that's a that that is a job that exists because there's a market that exists and if people are paying that are people are, are people paying and complaining? If he's still selling them, then he's not doing anything wrong because people, people are willing to pay. about the, the hiked up prices and stuff. I, I, but that's the market. That's good. That's capitalism. Right? The, that's, capitalism. that's the thing. If, if if you're sitting here and saying you don't like capitalism, then yeah, that's that's a good example. If you're saying here you're a capitalist, then that's capital. Like I don't know. Okay, here's a question for you, Jake. Did this movie make you question the system of capitalism? Like, is this is. <laughs> Did the inherent evil inside of capitalism make you quit? Or do you just be like, you know what? I accept that evil. I accept capitalism. And I accept America. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. I, I've thought about this long ago. Whenever I read The Jungle. Like, uh, this is this wasn't a new concept to me. So, like, that was something for this. For me, this movie, I didn't. It wasn't a <laughs> contemplative. <laughs> No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I've thought about this more than once in the last 20 years or 25 years, ever since I became cognizant of haves and have-nots. But the idea to me, but to go there to talk about the capitalism question, I think you kind of touched on it before. It's it's not good or bad. It's both. Like it can rise. Like it's opportunity. It's luck. It's hard work. Sometimes it's ruthlessness. Yeah. And but it's like. Yeah, Daniel Plainview is a really bad dude, but how many people had, like, and this uh, this sounds awful, but I'm just being honest here in this movie, how much prosperity did he bring? He kept most of it for himself, but he raised some towns from little dirt shanty towns. So you were talking about, like, Bakersfield. Like, yeah. Like, he brought him. <laughs> he, he got the train there. He made it into a hub, like, yeah. and he also, whether you like them or not, the Irish guy, Siren Hines, like, I don't think that guy was poor. I think, like, they seem, my whole takeaway was that these people worked for him because he paid them. Like, I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm not saying you can pay and get whatever you want or do whatever you want. But I'm just saying he was bringing press. He was definitely a bad dude, probably keeping way too much money for himself. But even whether by purpose or not, I think he was improving other people's lives around him. And no, he wasn't a good guy, but if he was economically lifting people out of poverty or better lives or getting kids something better for their future, then no, I don't think he is a good guy, but he might not be a fully bad guy. And talking about like that description, that was was a great description. You could say that about all those industrialists like Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Vanderbilt. All these guys that were like early 1900s risers and like really built the infrastructure of this country, they all did some evil shit behind closed doors. But, you know, Rockefeller was a great philanthropist later in his life. People talk about William Randolph Hearst all the time. He was a newspaper guy who started a war. He was an awful dude. He started the Mexican Indian War. He almost started the drug war, too. He's an awful dude. He is not a good guy, but, like, this is the thing, like... And this is the difference between religion. When when religion, what you're giving people are prayers and like magic things. And I'm not knocking religion. I am more spiritual than religious. But when you're just going to anyone, like I don't think putting someone putting on a frock or a hat or whatever. I don't think someone telling someone they're spiritual or a spiritual yeah. leader or going to school for it can make you a spiritual leader. And I just have a real problem with anything that's like too organized. Uh, 
That, I think that one of the things the movie does kind of show well is that it's like the oil produces so much for that town. It's like <laughs> there, there's capitalism was always going. Yeah, like you said, it was like it was capitalism was always going to be that revolution. There was no stopping it. It was producing so much by that point, and so it's like. It's just kind of funny to see the juxtaposition of like this, yeah, like a, a superstitious or this performative priest who's doing nothing for these people. It's just amazing that that was like the central form of power for thousands of years. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> people just listening to people because they told them to do shit is weird, and it happens today. Like you talk about like media and everything, and it still happens. Yeah. But like, and that like that's kind of more about into the master. Talking about connecting themes, Jake. Yeah, well, now we're now we got something working here. But um, no, the the more we talked about it, the movie definitely got better. Uh, so there are definitely some things that I did That's pick good. up on, but there were, there were more I didn't. Yeah, you had all the the criticisms that I kind of thought you might. Um, but it's a you know, it's a, it's like I'm trying to imagine if I'd seen it like after I'd seen other PTA movies or something. I don't know how I would have taken it. Obviously, my first viewing colored uh the way i see it but i do i think the central theme the allegory and like the i mean the level of acting that uh day lewis is at is unbelievable and for pta too it's a step up for him filmmaking wise i think magnolia is kind of a messy movie i think punch truck love is kind of a messy movie and for him to kind of come back with a much more like these are like a clear-cut themes and some of the yeah like we said the oil derrick scenes amazingly well shot even some of the solar stuff like uh that scene of Day-Lewis and his son on the train for the first time, and they're kind of going into, you know, and it's like the son's kind of looking up. It looks like an old painting or something. It's like kind of an amazingly shot. Um, I, I just think he kind of went to another level, too, as a director, where he's not doing rapid cuts anymore and all over the place. He's, he's, he's doing more one-takes. He's letting Day-Lewis kind of, like, act a whole scene and capturing the whole thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like... I, yeah, again, to me, it's like the... I would, yeah, it's like, I feel like this is day Luce's best movie and PTA's best movie, for my money, so. I haven't seen all of their movies, so so I, I'm somewhat reluctant to say best or not, but, like, I can say it's one of my favorite uh, DDL performances because he just crushes it. Like, he is awesome in every single scene, and I do think there's some really cool shots. Like, there's some shots that I wish I'd seen in the theater, and I was kind of trying to touch on this earlier, but, like, it was see, a great uh, widescreen, yeah. I cool. could see that, like, especially some of those, like, especially the first, like, 30, 40, 50 minutes of the movie, it was the sprawling Western epic, yeah. and it's like, there's a way you should see that, and yeah. that's actually one of my problems to Hateful Eight, it's you have a Western movie, and it all takes place in one little shack, which I thought was such, like, a, a travesty, but, excuse me. <laughs> I like that. I've, I've I had the privilege of driving cross country, and, like, the from the Pacific Northwest down through like Chicago. And it was awesome. Like, it's so pretty. Like I just, such a missed opportunity. I thought, but I digress. Interesting take. That's uh, a, this is valid. I, yeah. Uh, Tarantino also shot that on 30 millimeter. And uh, I agree. He does, It's like, uh, blood has a lot more of those just like wide shots of the countryside stuff. Or like there's one shot too where you kind of see the train tracks and it shows you the whole town and like everything's kind of moving underneath it. It's a. It's I like that. I, I thought he did a great job with those shots in this movie. And my I, I was criticizing the hateful eight, and I guess what I was trying to do there was contrast it with this one. 
because I think he does a really good job with this movie. Like, and some of my favorite shots, it's, I think there's one of when they first go, he and the son get there and they meet the dad. I think it's all one shot. And then you see them like, hiking up and there's a couple of shots like that. And you like the campfire shots, like they do. He does a really good job of making the setting part of the character. And I think yeah. that's one of the things that I really liked. Famously um, uh, shot at the same time and same location as uh, No Country for Old Men. No way. Winning Best Picture. So they were like, both of these shoots were right next to each other. Apparently the actors would like have lunch together and stuff. It's crazy to me that like two of the best movies of this century were shot at the same time in the same location. That's pretty cool. I and would. I, really good cinematography in both movies. I think this one best cinematography. I would say I think no country. Best picture. I would say I think no country is better, but I do like I, that is pretty crazy. But you think you think no country deserved best picture, best director? I wouldn't. Have, I would have been cool with a split either way. Yeah, it was. A, I remember going to that awards. No country was the heavy favorite, but I was rooting for blood, and I thought PTA would pull director. And then when Ethan Cohen won director, I knew he wasn't winning best picture. But but blood did win cinematography. It also won. Uh, Lewis one, right? Yeah, Day Lewis one. That's pretty good. I, I think that's a fair. For, to be honest, I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's fair. If it had been the other way, I would also be like, I think that's fair. If it, like you had flipped it, I'd be like, the only award that was like the Day Lewis was bound to win that Best Actor, and so it's like that was that was the only one that was like a definite. The, all the other ones was like, is Blood winning this or is No Country winning this? I will. I know I kind of bashed the last scene before. The only thing that was good was Daniel Day Lewis and the the milkshake thing is awesome. And I, even the way he's eating the lamb chops, and you're just like, oh man, he's eating lamb chops for us. It's like he's eating the blood of lambs. <laughs> well, exactly. That's exactly that. I was, and the other thing I loved too was just the. Uh, then this could play into why they didn't have like a government there. It's like, oh, it wasn't my land. Like, but he just is like, no, no, like I wanted it. You didn't give it to me, and I took it anyways. He's like, I take what I want. Like, it's basically like it, you don't realize. Like, you have apparently been serving me this whole time. Um, apparently, I forget the name of the guy, but some oil man pulled that move, and there's like this court. He got in a court case or something about it, and he was like, I never bought this land. I just sucked the oil out from under it. I drink, like he said that I drink your milkshake thing in the, like that was where PTA got that line apparently. Was a, he was like going through this transcript and he's like, I couldn't believe that milkshake was in the transcript. Um, yeah, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, how did you feel of just like the bizarreness of like having that last scene in a bowling alley? Did that work for you? Was that effective or was it just like weird? Was, was that supposed to be something? Was there like something I wasn't picking up on? I think it's just kind of supposed to be this, uh, it's like you've, you've spent like at least two hours out in the Old West in these oil fields with all these rural shots and rocks and fields and stuff. And then the, the f- final part of this movie is like in this very sleek, abstract, bizarre, old-fashioned bowling alley thing. I do think, he, like, I think he's kind of going for a Kubrickian thing, almost like the opening of Clockwork where it's like all this like weird, sleek architecture or something. So I, I, he's going for a bizarreness in that scene that's supposed to like unsell you or something I don't know if that had any effect on you <laughs> no so I think if you're going for bizarre you're underwhelmed I, I think you could you could have had a little more fun than a bowling alley if you really wanted to go like for a oh, bizarre sure. I thought it was pretty it's like like what's the weirdest like thing a guy could have in his mansion at that time bowling alley is like pretty kind of weird I mean if you really wanted to have like a real common commentary on like American politics it should have been uh, theater or you could have had a bar 
Or you could have had a pool room. Like an early black and white movie theater just for him or something. Yeah. Like, I I guarantee you Kubrick would have made it a billiards room. He would have had, like, the red, you know. Well, that was, I was going to say, it should have been a billiards room. But if the question is, the only, like, the credit I'm giving it, and I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt here, I I think I'm being a little generous, but I'll, I'll give it to him. If the idea is that he is the bowler, like he is the bowler, the bowling ball is his business or whatever, whatever resources he has, and everyone else have the pins, right. then I get that is it's almost like a puppet master thing. But you could have gotten that, you could have done that with a, a billiard room, and I think that could have been a little more cinematic and looked a little cooler with like the darkness and then like probably lights over the, the pool cues. You, you could have done anything. You could have just made it a lounge. You, like, you could have had it been in the kitchen. Or you could have done, like, a sauna kind of thing or, like, you know, like a... No, no, not uh, sauna. Not sauna. I mean, you could have done a sauna if you wanted. You could have done a pool. You could have done a deck. The bowling alley thing, like, to me, the bowling alley, talk about, like, trying to strip it down to its most basic thing. And I love bowling. And this is not <laughs> against bowling. But bowling's a pretty huge slice. That's, like, pretty American. And so, yeah. to me, it's almost a little bit too on the nose. Like... And I, I'm not trying to be rude here. I was in a bowling league yeah, in college. I really do love bowling. But, like, it's pretty – I think it's also somewhat royal. Doesn't it come from, like, medieval Europe? Like, isn't it, like, an old – I don't know. I know billiards does come from royalty. I know billiards. I know tennis does. I think golf does. Like, so – I feel like you're right, though. I feel like bowling's an American invention, but I'm not 100% sure. But, like, there's something very – there's just something that, to me, about the bowling, it's almost too – I, maybe lawn bowling came first or something. I hear what you're saying, though. It's a little too, like, he's the ball and there's the pin. I hear what you're saying. I think, for me, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if he, like, if it's the perfect setting, but I do, I think it's, like, it works in terms of, like, what you've seen before is so different than, like, what that room is, and it's just weird. It's weird that the final conversation happens in the setting that you're kind of, like, uncomfortable with. <laughs> What I didn't love was that it was a setting we hadn't seen before. And we'd seen them in the church twice before. We'd seen them. They'd been in multiple places with each other multiple times. And, and I think it was the worst setting they chose for the end. And, like, I, I thought, like, I'd seen the scene. And so this is one of the things I think that hurt the movie. I'd seen some highlights previously on YouTube. Like, I'd seen the milk straw, the milkshake scene cause just because I heard how good it was. And on YouTube, when you see that, others come up. So I'd seen a couple of them. So that probably might be hurt how much I liked it, but uh, I forgot where I was going with that. But basically, you were saying the setting didn't work for you. I thought that was at a courtroom or something. I didn't realize, like, I didn't see the beatdown afterwards. So I thought it was like something big had just happened. Like the fact that it happens in his bowling alley, and like <laughs> I don't know, I just it didn't even. Honestly, mean- Sunset Boulevard, like the old 
millionaire who's like in the mansion who's like out of his mind. Um, but yeah, it's like you don't spend enough time for that to become a real setting in it. I just, yeah, like what I think is going on there is he's really trying to make you feel uncomfortable because you've been outside. So much of it takes place outside. Even the interiors are just like in these cabins and stuff. And it's like you feel like you're outside the whole movie. I um, think it would have been more effective to have it in the same room where you had the conversation with the son, the office. Okay. Uh, or like holding court in that office. Yeah. Or like. What if he has a little church room in his house, which you know is bullshit because you don't play music. That would be funny. Like, I just think, like, again, I I hate doing the rewriting or fan fiction, but I just think I see what they're going for, and I think it was, again, maybe too much on the nose, and they could have just tweaked it a bit, and it would have been... My takeaway from this movie, like, talking, we talk about, like, Brother and before and, like, different takes, I think there are multiple takes, on it, I don't think they're all. I don't think there's like four or five like a Kubrick movie though. I think there's like two, and yeah, I, I see how people read into more. And I think what they do really well is they there's probably four levels, but they're never hitting more than two at the same time. If that makes sense. I know what you're saying. And like Kubrick I, 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 is hitting like four or five every scene. So I, yeah. I think that's kind of. And I think what kind of hurts it for me is how it jumps around a bit. Like some of the stuff talking with you has been awesome. A lot of the religion, economic stuff makes more sense now. Like I knew that was going on, but now I have a more well-rounded view, and I think a different yeah. opinion of how it plays. But some of the stuff too, like just everything, really, with, still with Dana. I'm I mean, like, it's, a, it's if the plot was topic. a little tighter. Like if you did edit out some of the brother stuff or something, I think you're right. It's like the, for much of the movie, it's playing on two levels, maybe, and then maybe a few scenes it'll hit on like three or four and go deeper. No, but I don't want to do dream right. casting it's like here. A movie where it's just like five layers deep the whole time, and you're just like immersed. I don't want to do dream casting here, but what if Eli was played by? I'm going to give you two options here, and feel free to take it, leave it, whatever give you me. want. Sam Rockwell or Jesse Eisenberg? Ooh, um, Rockwell was probably a little old at the time, but would have been interesting. Um, I think Eisenberg would have been a really interesting choice. I think he might have been better. I, I don't want to say for sure he would have been better than Dano. Um, I want to hope. But I, I think Eisenberg's like eccentricities would really play well into this character. I think he would really crush it. And I think he can <laughs> kind of bring a weird physicality to it as like a small, like hyper guy. But let me hit you with the name here. Let me see what you think of it. I thought of this guy last night a little bit. For this. It's funny how I think everyone watches this movie now, and they're just like, who would I cast in the Paul Dano part? Um, I, I was thinking about Ben Foster. I love Ben Foster. I think that. But he kind of plays a little big sometimes. Yeah, I was like, he's a little too much plain view in him or something. <laughs> he, that's the, I think he would have been great as the son. Like, the older son, oh, maybe give him more of a role. Because he's a really physical guy. I love him. I think he's great. But I just think of he was in the movie Hostiles. And, like, when he plays bad, he plays bad. Yeah. Like, there's no, yeah, yeah. there's not a lot of subtlety. To with, that, with that Russell Crowe Western, where he's, like, a bad guy, he's a good actor. Oh, yeah. That's another, that's, that's a perfect example. He's, like, that's, he's a great actor. But when he's yeah. good, he's, like... When he's good, he's like a good guy who still you can just tell he just like has like a bad. I'm not giving a good description here. He's a good <laughs> bad guy. He's a good yeah. bad guy, but when he plays a bad guy, like you know, it's just like he doesn't have a poker yeah. face and he plays it really well. And when he plays a good guy, you can tell it's like a 
he's you can tell he's playing against type, and I think it works for him. But like, there's no surprises. He's almost always a bad guy. I think the real dream casting would have been like a younger Ed Norton or a younger Leo. I think that would have been the real sweet spot. I mean, but. if you could have gotten like a 1997 or eight Leo, or yeah. like a or a 96 Norton, I think yeah. I think you're talking. Best movie. I mean, it's already up there. I think you're actually, for me, I'm, you're like maybe one of my favorite movies of all time. And so, you know, I, it's funny because that's like, of the movie people I talk to, um, this movie's always mentioned in like that combo of like what are the best sort of modern movies. Or, and when people say that, I honestly think they mean from 1990 onwards. <laughs> what's your what's your cutoff? What's the movie? I've heard like Dracula. I've heard like... Uh, Oh, Silence of the Lambs. I've heard like specific movies as cutoffs between like classic yeah, it's, and modern. It's like it's somewhere in there. It's hard. It's hard to be like this is the cutoff because it's like there are some late '80s movies and stuff that I think are very done, are done. Like Last of the Mohicans is a movie that kind of feels like a '90s movie, but I think it was like '88 or '89 when it came out. So it's like it's kind of yeah. It's like it's hard to like make a true cutoff. But the other way to do it would be like, well, what's the last great movie? before Pulp Fiction, I guess, if we're all agreeing, like, Pulp Fiction's one of these, like, and so if you want to go backwards from there, it's like, I think you'd kind of hit, like, maybe... I would actually say T2 is a better diviner, because T2 really launched the, like, okay, that, that I'm speaking a little out of turn, Star Wars happened a long time, but, like, T2, before <laughs> T2, there was, like, Star Wars and Indiana Jones and a couple things. After T2, it really opened up like a sci-fi boom, which I think yeah. led to The Matrix. And we, we I don't want to say dealing with ever since because that sounds negative. Right. <laughs> we were just talking about T2 um, and how it's led to a real sci-fi boom. And I would make the argument, if you really want to cut it down, I would make T2 as my hard and stop date. But it, I think you would, it would be better to make it like a period, like 85 to 95 probably. Yeah. I, and like what I was saying, it's like if you want to just go back to like the last great movie, I think it's like you're kind of going back into that like maybe Full Metal Jacket, maybe Blade Runner, maybe The Shining. Like I don't know what you're taking out of that. I'm not putting Blade Runner up there. I think Blade Runner is one of those movies. Said, what's the, but like what's the highest rated movie of the 80s? What's the like? What's the Godfather of the eighties? You know what I mean. Godfather two and Aliens. And hey, well, Godfather two is in the seventies. It was no, no, no. I thought Godfather two was in the eighties. No, it's like seventy four. Well, Aliens is right in the middle, and that's one of the best reviewed. Well, remember, Aliens is a pick. I would, I would personally rate Blade Runner higher than Aliens. Hot take. (laughs) Which which Blade Runner? Which version? Uh, the one without the, not the theatrical one, the one without the talking. The one with the, does he find the, the thing at the end and realize he's a replica? Unicorn, yeah. I believe it's called The Final Cut now. Used to, actually, I, The Final Cut took something out of the director's cut. The director's cut had some deleted scenes that, like, then Ridley went back and re-edited and took those out. The original director's cut is the one that I like, just to be on the record. But there's like three or four cuts of that movie. I is it Ray's or original Ray's, Jerry? <laughs> or Kramer, <laughs> whatever. The, there's a Seinfeld joke about that. That's my problem with Blade Runner. There's literally like six or seven versions. So, I mean, uh, yeah, if you let any director put out seven versions of a good movie, I think you can hit. A, I think you can create the illusion of a masterpiece. Uh, jacket, I might put up there. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're making the cutoff around T2 or 1990 or something, I think what's funny to me is I was thinking about this. I was like, so what's my top three? And I was like, Pulp Fiction, Blood, 
And then I almost was like, maybe Matrix 1 is like my third. Because I remember rating Matrix 1 like 9 and change or something. And I was like, but the, suffice to say, it's like, I don't really think that there's like a critic, like not a dramatic, like you can take these sci-fi and action movies and make arguments for them being the best of these kind of movies and stuff. But I don't think there's a real dramatic movie that I would rate higher than Blood or Pulp Fiction. It's like, you know, I remember doing the 2010 list and I had stuff like Whiplash and The Master, you know, those are really good social network. It's like I rated those movies really high, but I don't think they're on the same kind of level for me. I've got, I think I've got a pretty strong top three. Okay. Shawshank. Ooh. Children of Men. Children of Men. One of my favorites. And 25th Hour. Oh, those are good picks. Those are my top three. Those are my movies, including comic book movies, all my favorites. Those are my top three. I've probably seen those. I haven't seen 25th Hour as much as the other two. Um, and I probably haven't seen Children of Men as much as Shawshank, mainly because Children of Men and 25th Hour are just so depressing <laughs> for so long. But Children of Men is, I think, a really well-shot, really well-acted movie. I think it's like a lost – This okay, I'm going to be dramatic. Well, I think it's I a lost gonna, masterpiece. It's not to hit my criticism. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I, that's why I want to get it out. I think it's a lost masterpiece, but give me your criticism. Uh, so I, think it, I actually think it was like close to a masterpiece, but – it's one of these movies where it's high concept and then they don't advance the concept for me where they're like, what if we have this world where people stop having babies? And then it's like, but then this one woman gets pregnant and we have to save this baby and repopulate the earth or something. But then it's like the whole movie is just about getting her to this place. And then you don't see anything that happens at the place. And it was like, I I just felt like they created a concept and they never advanced past their original point of it. And I was like, well, what happens next? And like, why does someone solve this pregnancy crisis? Or like, is this a one and out baby? Or, and you know, all of the, I don't know. I I liked the movie because it was so well, like there's some amazing shots and some amazing scene, like Clive Owen, I think is great in that movie, but the the actual writing of it was where I had my problem. I think that's a totally fair criticism, but my take is that, the movie switches from the big concept thing to it's like you're realizing it's just them having to get the journey. And it's like becomes like the hero's journey and it ends with him dying, but he has hope again. Like he did all this because yeah. he has hope again and he lost hope. And so that's my takeaway. But with that being said, that's um, that doesn't mean the way it is. Your your takeaway and critic and take is just it's not more about because it's, it's like I love high concept movies like that. But it's just, it's so maddening when they don't. I remember that, remember that Justin Timberlake movie, In Time? Yes. And I remember wanting to like that because I loved the concept. But then I was like, man, they did fucking nothing like this. This is the, I think that's a fair criticism because there's a scene with him. Uh, I can't remember the actor's name. It's Danny something. But you, he meets his cousin. And his yeah. cousin's clearly in some level of position and lives in some comfort. But you yeah. never see him again. And that's the closest we get to see the, like the real political apparatus that dominates this post-apocalyptic, awful world. And who you believe are trying to, like, they're the ones who they're fighting against. And it's just a very... You're right. I think what, it's Quran, right, that did that movie? Yes. I think what he was, I think he would, like, he liked the concept, but then he was like, look, we'll just execute this journey really well. And like that, and it's like, I kind of see that because it's like, if you're not, if you're going to sort of like try to advance the concept and you don't like where it's going, it's better to not fuck with it and just kind of like make your little story. So it, like... I do like that movie. It's a good movie, but it's like every time I watch it, I'm like, God damn, I wish they just like 
went a little further. I think that's a, that, and the more we talk about it, that's totally fair. The basically they lure you in with this big heady concept, like, oh, yeah. what if no one can get pregnant? Wow, and then that's it becomes really cool. yeah, like the social outbreak of this would be amazing. Yeah. And then it becomes a very like then it becomes a more traditional like he's a knight, like how does he get the princess to the castle? And it's like to me, I look at it as it's like it's like a journey, it's a quest, and it's very and. He, you could definitely say it gets a little predictable, but what I liked about it was they had the two of the one take scenes, which are just oh, yeah. incredible yeah. action sequences. Yeah. I remember those, yeah. And like that's for me, like what I loved about it. It was just like talking about a movie that blends different things. It was like this drama, like future, post apocalyptic yeah. movie, yeah. and there was also tons of like interesting action, not like old shoot 'em up things or yeah. big brawls, but there was like really tense scenes like getaways chases and there are yeah. some fights and like battles like it's pretty cool i will say i do think your shawshank pick might be the best pick for the third movie that i would rate that high maybe yeah, yeah the, maybe silence of the lambs i'm not sure if i'll put it up there silence of the lambs is great and that's like oh, that's just my top three uh and it's probably i've seen shawshank so many times on tv and t and tbs and i love pretty it close to a perfect movie it's and that's the th- it's like and t- i gave I get a lot of crap to movies for not having enough women in it. That's a fair criticism against that movie. But to me, it's like Saving Private Ryan. I don't expect a lot of women in that environment. So I kind of give it a pass. Uh, I just want to say that. I know I've talked a lot of shit about that. So I feel like that would be unfair. But I I do love Josh. It's interesting when you, it's like, I don't always feel that way, but it's interesting when you mention it. Because it's like, I wasn't totally thinking about that with blood, but then you're like, there's just no women in this. And it's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's, I don't, I don't say it to be annoying because sometimes like that, like for say Private Ryan and like other movies, like in times where there's no women or not likely women, I don't have a problem with that. But it's just like, you have like a two and a half hour movie or if you're freaking the Irishman and have a three and a half hour movie yeah, and like you can't squeeze in any female characters for more than like a handful of lines. Like I just feel about Gary Glenn Ross. I've actually never seen that movie. Oh, we should do that, Jake. That should go on our list. Oh, let's do it. Let's do that. We'll do that. Let's Parenthood. Do that also, do you want to do Labyrinth? Oh, I'll do Labyrinth. All right, we'll I'm do Labyrinth. Do, uh, Washington Labyrinth. All right. Um, all right. Sorry, I got us off track. Um, no worries. What were we talking about? We were talking about <laughs> oh, women in movies and the lack of women. And uh, yeah, Blood Had No Women. And yeah, how is it? You're you're more aware of it than I am, which I appreciate. Um, Are we still on blood? Well, no, we started sort of ranking the best movies. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say I completely lost track. Yeah, I was like, Pulp Fiction and Blood are way up there. Maybe shot like Shawshank, I think, is on that level actually. Um, yeah, Silence of the Lambs, I think, um, could be up there. I wouldn't argue with that. There, there's a lot of contenders, and there's like probably 20 to 30 movies someone could say, and I would be yeah, like, yeah. Like you're trying to pick out the special ones kind of when you do it. It's like you're trying to pick out The Godfather or The 2001. It's like, what were the iconic movies? So it's a, I think Pulp Fiction's the one where it's like everyone kind of agrees. I, it's like I haven't met a lot of people that are just like, this isn't one of the great movies. I've met some people that like other Tarantino movies more, which I always find weird. But it's like, to me, it's like, it's hard to disagree with that one. I would say Kill Bill. If you want to throw the two Kill Bills together, I think that's my favorite, like, piece of work. 
I love and Inglorious and Pulp. I think I prefer Inglorious. This is not gonna make sense. I think I'd rather watch Inglorious, but I think Pulp is better. Like Pulp is a really cool, ambitious movie, and it's like it's basically a vignette movie that works, and it's awesome, and it really comes together in a good way. I just don't think thematically those other movies are like anywhere close to what Pulp is. Like I think Pulp works on like three or four levels throughout the movie, and I think a lot of other Tarantino movies are kind of one note. I think that's fair, and I think that's fair. I, I just Glorious Bastards to me, that's a movie that I think's more one note. That's awesome. Like it that's hits every beat it has to. That's a that's a and Kill Bill can be enjoyable in a way that Pulp Fiction isn't. So I, it's like I hear what you're saying. Too. I've done the Kill Bill uh, marathon. It's pretty awesome. Like seeing it all in one swoop, I think it really adds. Uh, I should do that. I, you know, I haven't revisited that in a while. Um, but yeah, it's uh, for my. It's like like I said, the the thematics of Pulp I think are just deeper, and also like. Travolta, Samuel Jackson, and Uma Thurman are all like pretty much peak right there. Bruce Willis too, one of his better roles. The French girl, I don't understand why she's in that, but all right. I agree. That's a, that's a good criticism. We're okay, we're way off track. We need to we need to rate blood. Okay, what are you rating blood? Rating blood. Um, boy. After watching it last night and giving Dan and like kind of giving Dan a credit where he's due and then deducting points where I think it needs to be deducted and not just kind of shitting out of my guess. Um, and all, you know, all the other acting outside of Day Lewis, I think is like sort of perfectly done for what it is. I don't think anyone's going for too much or like kind of gets swallowed up or anything. Um, and I think the directing's really at a high level. I mean, it won the cinematography award. I'm going to go like 9.5. Ooh, I like it. I like it. 9.5. Nice and That's high. That's a tie. I don't give out a lot of 9.5s, Jake. But. All right, respect. This is going to be a big gap, and I'm not saying I'm this to it. <laughs> it's going to be the, an Avengers Endgame like gap here. I think so. I'm giving it an 8.3. Ooh, okay. Love the movie. Very can strong. I, can I the biggest criticism or critique at the end of the day? Is it Dano? Is it the lack of women? Is it the lack of a government character? No, the lack. Okay, so the lack of the women. It's something I bring up, and I, I really do feel like a nudge every time. Uh, it's something I notice. It's not. It's normally something I'm like. It's that's just something I notice. It's not something that always necessarily bothers me. And this is one where I bring it up. It's not as egregious as I think as other films. Some I mentioned. Uh, to to me, it's kind of understandable, but at the same time, it's like. You know, there's men here, and they wouldn't live their lives without women, kind of. Yeah, I mean, as I said, like you don't get to see him around his own coworkers, really. So the the woman thing doesn't bother me as much. I think it's I don't think it's necessarily like misogynistic. I think it's just more focused. I think you make that yeah. argument for every movie. Uh, but I'm not trying to be annoying. It's really not one. I think it's really the two that kind of go together. It's the. The Dano, I don't want to say the Dano character because he has some of my favorite scenes, but ultimately that dynamic, the Dano, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis thing, it feels so weird to say this because I do like them both and they give good performances, but for me, I just don't think it hits every it does, yeah, You're right. It's like it doesn't quite click the, at the way it should. It's like they just don't. They're both really good. They're both really good on their own, but yeah, the chemistry isn't quite what it like should have been or something. Okay, this is not going to be a perfect analogy, but it's like the 2000 and 
what was whatever the last like uh, Lakers team that won when it had like Rick Fox and Fisher and like oh, yeah. and I think Corey and Shaq and LeBron and uh, excuse me Kobe, and then they traded and they got like Gary Payton and Carl yeah, Malone, yeah. and they like should have and they should have been a better team, and it, they weren't because they were like playing not with each other but like just next to each yeah, other. There was no chemistry. Yeah, it was just a bunch of dudes playing. Yeah. And that's how I felt with this. It was like when Dano was at his best, he was never like clicking. He was never bouncing off Daniel Day Lewis like they were making each other better. Like Daniel Day Lewis was just blowing him off the screen. Dano Kobe here. Let's just make that clear. What'd you say? You're not calling Paul Dano Kobe. We're just making a note. No, 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 no. I'm no, no, no. And excuse me. The I'm calling Paul Dano. Uh, no offense, Carl Malone or Gary Payton. Gary Payton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, and. Daniel Day-Lewis and PTA are Kobe and Shaq. They're the two. It's, uh, I, it's interesting because the master right after this, like, the chemistry between Hoffman and Phoenix in that movie I think is way, way better. Like, they're definitely on, like, a level there that's a, a much closer, I think. Well, that that that's kind of the, that's where I'm coming at from. It's like, this is a movie about relationships, and they do a great job with HW as a couple actors uh, of different variations of age. And... They even do a good job with Dana and his family, I think. His dad, like, there's a there's a couple scenes. Like, they build to that big blowout. I think it's over the top when Dana, yeah. like, tackles him and everything. But it's clearly a reflection of what happened to him. And, like, I kind of see him as, like, I always saw him as, like, a weak reflection of Daniel Day-Lewis. And that was, like, the thing that sealed it for me. It's like, oh, he's doing what he think Daniel Day-Lewis would do. Like, he's just... He's like a con man. He's just acting the way you think this guy would in the situation, so he can try and have power. Um, I'm kind I of. I think ultimately that's why the movie, you know, didn't win Best Picture. And it's, it's I think the Dano thing really was. It's like it's the one crack in the movie that everyone kind of looks at. And then the other thing to me, and I don't want to say this because I love long movies. It's not, but like, it's a long movie, and I think it goes short on story for too long. Or and like the biggest. It's like I guess it's three. The the fake brother had a great it led to a great scene, but it's, again at the end of the movie, it's like two hours and forty minutes, two and a half hours. You could have reduced, got cut him out almost completely, and instead of having him, have him be with the friend, and maybe it's the friend oh, yeah. cheated him out. Like, I, I don't, yeah, it's like I don't mind a, a long runtime because I think it's supposed to be a sprawling movie, but I, the, the writing should be tighter in that section. It, it's like either make that writing a lot tighter or like rewrite the. Yeah, something had to kind of be tweaked there to make that all work. But I can tell, it's like, like you said, it's like they got a couple good scenes out of it, and so I think they just kind of went with it. It doesn't destroy, it's like it doesn't, that part of it doesn't destroy anything he sets up that were like ruin the allegory. It's just kind of muddling what could have be more streamlined plot. I also like, this is the type of movie that I feel really bad criticizing, because it's, I think it's a really <laughs> smart movie. And I know I just ripped on it for not criticize these kind of movies. There, it's like if you're gonna make a movie this fucking serious and pretentious, it's like you got to be ready for someone to be like, "Hey, like, that and that's the only thing. Like, that's why like the first 15 minutes were really cool. But like, if your movie's that long, like, you you could have gotten that across much quicker. And I understand why he didn't want to, and he doesn't have to do it because I don't like it. He can do it. clearly he can do what he wants, but it's just <laughs> like I thought his economy of time could have been a little sharper. And you talked about that, so clearly we agree there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's yeah. There's a little sloppiness. I would have yeah. It's like I would love to be on the editing room and like know what the decisions are being made. But like this is again to use a really bad sports analogy. To me, this is like he threw up 33s and only made 13, but the team still won. 
Like, or, like, or maybe that's unfair. That's probably not a perfect one, but like he did, it was a imperfect performance, but still like a very, like a championship award winning, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Like it's still really impressive, even though it's got a couple flaws. And that's every movie has kind of realizes like this is like a real beast of a work. Like kind of regardless of where you rate it, it's like clearly this was like a thing that affected people. <laughs> it was. It's really. It's. It's well done. And even though I criticize it for maybe being too on the spot sometimes, I think it it hits everything. It gets across everything it wants. So I think sometimes it comes back off too slow or too that's obvious but it's still effective me. yeah that's always the biggest thing to me with the director especially when it's like you have thematics that are supposed to be comprehended by the viewer it's like if you can get, make those come across then you've achieved your goal and so it's like he clearly makes his thematics come across the right way so the, you can nitpick it and like talk about performances all you want but it's like he tells the story and he makes his point and i think that's really the biggest thing for a director it's a beautiful, sprawling Western with an incredible, like, central performance, and it's exciting. Like, it's got some awesome scenes we talked about. Like, it's a great movie. It's not what – I don't think it was the greatest of the year. I don't think it's – it's not one of my favorite. I don't think it's even his best, but I still think it's an awesome movie. There's still a lot of people that love Boogie Nights, too. There's a whole PTA crowd that's like, that's the really the good one. I would put Boogie Nights a master over this. I really I really think I would. Like, uh, Boogie Nights, I think, was it was – they're more, it was more fun. There was more, it's not a drama. It's still a. Oh, well, I'll tell you, I didn't see a nine inch penis in this one, Jake, so I'm missing that. I'm sorry, were you missing all those drills? <laughs> that was a phallic symbol, my friend. That was the white man just burrowing into Mother Earth. They, they should have simply put, you know, wrote Dirk Diggler on the side of the derrick. 